Chapters Eight and Nine of the Shepherd of the Hills. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Jomard. The Shepherd of the Hills by Harold Bell Wright. Chapter Eight. Why ain't we got no folks? Preachin' Bill says there's a heap of difference in most men, but Jim Lane now he's more different than every man you ever seed. Ain't no better neighbor than Jim anywhere. Right out of his way any time to do you a favor. But you bet there ain't every man lives can ask Jim any fool questions while Jim's a-lookin' at him. Tried it once myself. Jim was a-waitin' at the ferry for Wash Gibbs, and we was a-talkin' long right pert bout crops and the weather and such. When I says, says I, like a dumb old fool. How do you like it down in Texas, Jim, when you was there that time? I gonies. His jaw shut with a click like he'd cocked a pistol, and that look o' his'n like he was a seein' plumb through you come into his eyes. And he says, says he, quiet like, Do you reckon that rain over on James yesterday raised the river much? And for I knowed it, I was a tellin' him how that old red bull o' mine treed the Perkins boys when they was a possum huntin'. Many stories of the Baldnobber days when the law of the land was the law of rifle and rope, were drifting about the countryside, and always, when these tales were recited, the name of Jim Lane was whispered, while the bolder ones wondered beneath their breath where Jim went so much with that Wash Gibbs, whose daddy was killed by the government. Mr. Lane was a tall man, well set up, with something in his face and bearing that told of good breathing, Southern blood, one would say, by the dark skin, and the eyes, hair, and drooping mustache of black. His companion, Wash Gibbs, was a gigantic man, taller and heavier even than the elder Matthews, but more loosely put together than old Matt, with coarse, heavy features, and as Grandma Bull said, the look of a sheep-killing dog. Grandma, being very near her journey's end, could tell the truth even about Wash Gibbs, but others spoke of the giant only in whispers, save when they spoke in admiration of his physical powers. As the two men swung stiffly from their saddles, Sammy came running to greet her father with a kiss of welcome. This little exhibition of affection between parent and child was one of the many things that marked the lanes as different from the natives of that region. Your true backwoodsman carefully hides every sign of his love for either family or friends. Wash Gibbs stood looking on with an expression upon his brutal face that had very little of the human in it. Releasing his daughter, Mr. Lane said, "'Got anything to eat, honey? We're powerful hungry. Wash lad we'd better tie up at the river, but I knew you'd be watching for me. The horses are plumb beat.' And Gibbs broke in with a coarse laugh. "'I wouldn't mind killing a hoss neither if I was to get what you do at the end of the ride.' To this Jim made no reply, but began loosening the saddle girths, while Sammy only said, as she turned toward the house, "'I'll have supper ready for you directly, Daddy.' While the host was busy caring for his tired horse, the big man, who did not remove the saddle from his mount, followed the girl into the cabin. "'Can't you ever tell a feller, howdy?' he exclaimed as he entered the kitchen. "'I did tell you howdy.' "'replied the girl sharply, stirring up the fire. "'Pears like you might have been a grain warmer about it,' 
growled the other, seating himself where he could watch her. If I'd been young Matt, or that skinny Ollie Stewart, you'd have been keen enough. Sammy turned and faced him with angry eyes. Look a here, Wash Gibbs, I done told you last Thursday when you come for Daddy, that you'd better let me alone. I don't like you, and I don't aim ever to have anything to do with you. You done fixed yourself with me that time at the Cove picnic. I'll tell Daddy about that if you don't mind. I don't want to make no trouble, but you just got to quit pestering me. The big fellow sneered. I allowed you might change your mind about that some day. Jim ain't going to say nothing to me. And if he did, words don't break no bones. I'm a heap the best man in this neck of the woods, and your pa knows it. You know it, too. Under his look, the blood rushed to the girl's face in a burning blush. In spite of her anger, she dropped her eyes, and, without attempting a reply, turned to her work. A moment later, Mr. Lane entered the room. A single glance at his daughter's face, a quick look at Wash Gibbs, as the bully sat following with wolfish eyes every movement of the girl, and Jim stepped quietly in front of his guest. At the same moment, Sammy left the house for a bucket of water, and Wash turned toward his host with a start, to find the dark-faced man gazing at him with a look that few men could face with composure. Without a word, Jim's right hand crept stealthily inside his hickory shirt, where a button was missing. For a moment, Gibbs tried to return the look. He failed. Something he read in the dark face before him, some meaning light in those black eyes, made him tremble and he felt, rather than saw, Jim's hand resting quietly now inside the hickory shirt near his left armpit. The big man's face went white beneath the tan. His eyes wavered and shifted. He hung his head and shuffled his feet uneasily like an overgrown schoolboy brought sharply to task by the master. Then Jim, his hand still inside his shirt, drawled softly, but with a queer metallic ring in his voice. Do you reckon it's a-going to storm again? At the commonplace question, the bully drew a long breath and looked around. We might have a spell o' weather, he muttered but I don't guess it'll be tonight. Then Sammy returned and they had supper. Next to his daughter, Jim Lane loved his violin, and with good reason, for the instrument had once belonged to his great-grandfather, who tradition says was a musician of no mean ability. Preachin' Bill loud there was a heap of difference between a playin' a violin and just fiddlin'. You wouldn't know some fellers was a-makin' music, if you didn't see him a patting their foot. But it ain't that way with Jim Lane. He sure do make music, real music. As no one ever questioned Bill's judgment, it is safe to conclude that Mr. Lane inherited something of his great-grandfather's ability, along with his treasured instrument. When supper was over and Wash Gibbs had gone on his way, Jim took the violin from its peg above the fireplace, and, tucking it lovingly under his chin, gave himself up to his favorite pastime, while Sammy moved busily about the cabin, putting things right for the night. When her evening tasks were finished, the girl came and stood before her father. At once the music ceased and the violin was laid carefully aside. 
Sammy seated herself on her father's knee. "'Law, child, but you're sure growing up,' said Jim, with a mock groan at her weight. "'Yes, Daddy, I reckon I'm about growed. I'll be nineteen come Christmas.' "'Oh, shucks,' ejaculated the man. "'It wasn't more'n last week that you was washing doll clothes down by the spring.' The young woman laughed. "'I didn't wash no doll clothes last week,' she said. Then her voice changed, and that wide, questioning look, the look that made one think so of her father, came into her eyes. "'There's something I want to ask you, Daddy Jim. You—you know—' Ollie's going away, and—and—and I was thinking about it all day yesterday. And, Daddy, why ain't we got no folks? Mr. Lane stirred uneasily. Sammy continued. There's the Matthewses. They've got kin back in Illinois. Mandy Ford's got uncles and aunts over on Lang Creek. Jed Holland's got a granddad and ma'am, and even preachin' Bill talks about a pack of kinfolks over in Arkansas. Why ain't we got no folks, Daddy? The man gazed long and thoughtfully at the fresh young face of his child, and the black eyes looked into the brown eyes keenly as he answered her question with another question. Do you reckon you love him right smart, honey? Are you sure? Dead sure you ain't thinkin' of what he's got stead of what he is. I know it'll be mighty nice for you to be one of the fine folks, and there are big reasons why you ought. But it's going to take a mighty good man to match you. A mighty good man. And it's the man you've got to live with, not his money. Ollie's good, Daddy, she returned in a low voice, her eyes fixed upon the floor. I know. I know, replied Jim. He wouldn't do nobody no harm. He's good enough that way. But I ain't a faultin' him. But you ought to have a man, a sure enough good man. But tell me, Daddy, why ain't we got no folks? The faintest glimmer of a smile came into the dark face. You're sure growed up, girl. You're sure growed up. Girl, you sure are. And I reckon you might as well know. Then he told her. Chapter 9. Sammy Lane's Folks It began on a big southern plantation, where there were several brothers and sisters, with a gentleman father of no little pride, and a lady mother of equal pride and great beauty. With much care for detail, Jim drew a picture of the big mansion with its wide lawns, flower gardens, and tree-bordered walks, with its wealth of culture, its servants, and distinguished guests. For, said he, when you get to be a fine lady, you ought to know that you got as good blood as the best of the thoroughbreds. And Sammy, interrupting his speech with a kiss, bade him go on with his story. Then he told how the one black sheep of that proud southern flock had been cast forth from the beautiful home while still hardly grown, and how, with his horse, gun, and violin, the wanderer had come into the heart of the Ozark wilderness, when the print of moccasin feet was still warm on the old trail. Jim sketched broadly here, and for some reason did not fully explain the cause of his banishment. Neither did he comment in any way upon its justice or injustice. Time passed, 
and a strong, clear-eyed, clean-limbed, deep-bosomed mountain lass, with all the mastering passion of her kind, mated the free, half-wild young hunter, and they settled in the cabin by the spring on the southern slope of Dewey. Then the little one came, and in her veins there was mingled the blue blood of the proud southerners, and the warm red life of her wilderness mother. Again Jim's story grew rich in detail. Holding his daughter at arm's length, and looking at her through half-closed eyes, he said, "'You're like her, honey. You're mighty like her. Same eyes, same hair, same mouth, same build, same way of movin', strong, but smooth and free-like. She could run clean to the top of Dewey, or sit a horse all day. Do you ever get tired, girl?' Sammy laughed and shook her head. I've run from here to the signal tree lots of times, Daddy. You're like the old folks, too, mused Jim. Like them in what you think and say. Tell me more, said the girl. Seems like I remember being in a big wagon, and there was a woman there, too. Was she my mother? Jim nodded and unconsciously lowered his voice as he said, it was in the old bald-knobber time. Things happened in them days, honey. Many's the night I've seen the top of old Dewey yonder black with men. It was when things was broke up that— that your mother and me thought we could do better in Texas. So we went. Jim was again sketching broadly. Your mother left us there, girl. Seemed like she couldn't stand it, being away from the hills or something and she'd just give up. I never did rightly know how it was. We buried her out there, way out on the big plains. I remember her a little, whispered Sammy. Jim continued. Then, after a time, you and me come back to the old place. Your mother named you Samantha, girl. But being as there wasn't no boy, I always called you Sammy. It seems right enough that way now, for you've sure been more'n a son to me since we've been alone, and that's one reason why I learned you to ride and shoot with the best of them. There's them that says I ain't done right by you, bringing you up without airy woman about the place, and I don't know as I have, but somehow I couldn't never think of no woman as I ought, after living with your mother. And then there was Aunt Molly, to learn you how to cook, and do things about the house. I counted a good bit, too, on the old stock, and it sure showed up right. You're like the old folks, girl, in the way you think, but you're like your mother in the way you look. Sammy's arms went around her father's neck. You're a good man, Daddy Jim, the best daddy a girl ever had, and if I ain't all bad, it's on account of you. There was a queer look on the man's dark face. He had sketched some parts of his tail with a broad hand, indeed. The girl raised her head again. But, Daddy, I wish you'd do something for me. I... I don't like Wash Gibbs to be a-comin' here. I wish you'd quit ridin' with him, Daddy. I'm... I'm afeard of him, he looks at me so. He's a sure bad one. I know he is, Daddy. 
Jim laughed, and again there was that odd metallic note in his voice. "'I've knowed him a long time, honey. Me and his daddy was—was together when he died, and you used to sit on Wash's knee when you was a little tad. Not that he's so mighty much older than you, but he was a man's size at fifteen. You don't understand, girl, but I've got to go with him sometimes. But don't you fret. Wash Gibbs ain't going to hurt me, and he won't come here more than I can help, either. Then he changed the subject abruptly. Tell me what you've been doing while I was away. Sammy told of her visit to their friends at the Matthews place, and of the stranger who had come into the neighborhood. As the girl talked, her father questioned her carefully, and several times the metallic note crept into his soft, drawling speech while into his eyes came that peculiar, searching look, as if he would draw from his daughter even more than she knew of the incident. Once he rose, and going to the door, stood looking out into the night. Sammy finished with her answer to Mandy Ford's opinion of the stranger. "'You don't reckon a revenue would ask a blessin', do you, Daddy? Seems like he just naturally wouldn't dast. God would make the victual stick in his throat and choke him, sure.' Jim laughed as he replied, "'I don't know, girl. I never heard of a revenue's doing such, but a feller can't tell.' When Sammy left him to retire for the night, her father picked up the violin again, and placed it beneath his chin as if to play. But he did not touch the strings, and soon hung the instrument in its place above the mantel. Then, going to the doorway, he lighted his pipe, and for a full hour sat, looking up the old trail toward the Matthews place, his right hand thrust into the bosom of his hickory shirt, where the button was missing. End of chapters 8 and 9